0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com.
0: This week on Meet and 3, we get ready for Super Tuesday by looking at how food shapes elections, both at home and abroad.
2: People know that you don't order a Philly cheesesteak with Swiss cheese, as John Kerry did back in the 2004 cycle.
0: A young group of
1: friends decided that they would put up a website which told voters which polling booths had sausages. Prime Minister David Cameron
2: was pictured about a week after this incident, eating a hot dog in a bun with a knife and fork because he was so afraid.
0: Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm Yoshiki Katema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, Sakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Masud Kassi, who has the Japanese food and restaurant blog on Instagram called Tokyo Manhattan. And his posts not only describe restaurants he, he has visited, but also include many other elements behind the dishes, such as history, culture, and cooking methods. And he joined us on episode 125, 136, and 152, and shared his favorite Japanese chefs and restaurants in the world. So uh, today, we'll continue our conversation with Masud, but the theme is not his favorite restaurants. In order to help you to understand Japanese food more deeply, we'll delve into different genres of Japanese cuisine and how they are created. For example, have you heard of uh, Yori? It's the mother of Kaiseki Cuisine, created by the sunrise Also, we'll talk about tastes and flavors that are unique to Japanese cuisine, such as umami and kokumi. But before we begin, Japanese is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japanese. And please write our review. We really appreciate your feedback. And I have a quick announcement. Uh, if you listened to the show last week, I have to repeat, I'm sorry, but I wrote a book about Japanese food, and it recently came out in Japan in December, and now it's available worldwide on the Amazon website. It is called The Complete Guide to Japanese Cuisine, and the Japanese title is 英語てカイト There are two titles, because uh, it's written in both Chinese and Japanese side by side. The book is the kind of mini-encyclopedia of Japanese food and it covers 90 dishes, sweets and beverages with fun facts along with the foundational philosophy and history of Japanese cuisine. And a lot of people like the pictures on each page. And you can bring the book with you on your trip to Japan or to your favorite Japanese restaurant as a guidebook. If you work at a Japanese restaurant, it can be your go-to reference. Also if you are already familiar with Japanese food. The book is useful to explain the basics of Japanese food accurately to non-Japanese people. Or it can be a fun textbook for both English and Japanese language learners. It is available worldwide on the Amazon website as well, as well as on in bookstores in Japan and some bookstores outside Japan, such as Kinokuniya. And I just realize, if you really want to get a hard copy, um, here's a tip. If you go to Japanese Amazon, that's amazon.co.jp, uh, it's cheaper, including um, the shipping cost, so it's cheaper than Amazon.com. It's almost like half the price. Anyway, so again, the title is a Complete Guide to Japanese Cuisine, and in, in Japanese, I hope you will enjoy reading it. Now let's start our conversation with Masud Kiyasi. Hello Masud, welcome back.
2: Thank you, Akiko-san. N- nice to be back for the fourth time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So you're super regular. I appreciate your precious time. And you have a very busy day job too. So So speaking of, first of all, for our listeners who have not listened to the previous episodes, uh, 125, 136, 152, please tell us your super unique background.
2: Before I start, uh, just congratulations on your book. Thank you. Um, For everybody, again, as Kiko-san mentioned, if you haven't purchased it already, uh, please go purchase the book. Uh, I think it caters from everything to professional cooks, to the amateur, to Japanophiles. Um, I actually called Kino Kunia Bookstore, and they said it takes them two weeks to get the book. So I went ahead and placed an order on Amazon. I'm embarrassed to say that I don't have a copy today, but um, I should have one soon. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Mm, you make me cry. <laughs> it was <laughs> hard to do to, to the book. So anyway, so, so you are background is.
2: Yes, so beginning with my background and for those people that have already listened in, I'll make this brief. Um, I was um, ethnically Afghan, I've never been to Afghanistan. My dad was posted uh, with the embassy in Afghanistan in the 70s in Japan. The Soviet invasion took place, he he sought political asylum there and that's where I I was born and raised. Um, I spent 28 years of my career in Japan, uh, of my life in Japan. Uh, I do carry a Japanese passport, that's the only passport I carry. And I consider myself to have a Japanese, what they say, kokoro, so a Japanese heart. And, uh, you know, growing up in Japan, going to Japanese and international schools and having Japanese friends, I, in some sense, I'm very completely Japanese. Mm,
1: yeah, I cannot agree more. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the Japanese passport, I heard it's the most useful passport. Yes, it's one the of the world. best.
2: It's one of the best, I think. It's The first place is tied with like four others. I think it's Scandinavia's... Um, uh, Switzerland—they're they, also apparently very good passports. But it's—it's it's very easy to go different places. I was in Europe in uh, December actually for a food tour, and uh, there, there was a whole j- a line just for Japanese and other passport holders, <laughs> which expedited the whole process,
0: which was great.
1: <laughs> that means we spent a little money. Yeah. It, maybe. <laughs> All right. So let's um, dive into today's topic. Uh, so we we use the word Japanese cuisine to describe whatever is related to Japanese food, but it's uh, such an umbrella term and we would like to break it down to demystify it in this episode. So first I'd like to discuss the essence of Japanese cuisine and speaking of uh, the Japanese cuisine called Washoku was added to the list of UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage uh, in December 2013. So what are the reasons that they were re- they received? the Japanese cuisine received a special recognition by UNESCO.
2: Yeah, so I think uh, the, the, what they uh, awarded it for was uh, for washoku, which loosely uh, translated or literally translated is Japanese food. It's a, s- a specific type of Japanese food which we'll discuss later. There are various genres of Japanese food. Um, And in particular, they emphasize what's called osechi ryori, which is what's served during New Year's, which we'll discuss later. Um, I'm going to be extensively quoting from uh, UNESCO's uh, uh, um, intangible cultural heritage site here. But uh, they define Washoku as a social practice. Um, It's based on a set of skills, knowledge, practice, and traditions which relates to the production, processing, preparation, and consumption of food. Um, It captures, well, Shoku again captures, it's part of an essential spirit of respect for nature, and that is closely related to the sustainable use of natural resources. Again, this is typically seen in in, in New Year. It's it's practiced um, and shared by families and communities, uh, each ingredient in dish has a symbolic meaning. And the basic skills um, and knowledge related to Washoku, such as uh, proper seasoning, uh, the home cooking are usually passed down through families um, in, in the home and also shared by communities and in, in during meal times. Mm. So it's, it's a grassroots group that uh, consistently uh, passes this to the next generation. School teachers, cooking instructors all play a role. So basically everyone society plays a role to preserve this and practice this and, and keep, keep the uh, culture going. So that's the reason why they won the, uh, they, they received the UNESCO uh, culture, what is it, the intangible cur- cultural her- heritage.
1: Mm, right. And the washoku in other meaning is, why is uh, harmony? And choku is food, so it's a food of harmony, like you said. everybody's involved in harmony. So. Yes. Right. And I also went to the uh, the website of the the Ministry of uh, Agriculture and Fisheries, and there's there are four elements. Um, so, very rich, uh, diverse nature, which of course provides different kind of produce, and also really, you know, ichiju sansai one soup, three uh, dishes, so balanced nutrition. And also seasonality that naturally provides the maximum nutrition out of nature. Yep. So and also the community element
2: falls into the sustainability sustainability theme, which is also a very big top topic, especially if you live in New York and various capitals of, of Europe.
1: Mm, right. So I think the all those you know elements of essence of Japanese cuisine it can be applied to anybody, any country. In a way, if you keep them in mind, try to be more seasonal, sustainable, and I think try to respect the nature and the community. That's the harmony, good of harmony.
2: Absolutely. It's interesting you say that because in, uh, in uh, December, I was in Piedmont, and I went to a, I had the honor of going to a restaurant called um, Piazza Duomo, which is a Michelin three-star restaurant. It's one of the top restaurants of the world. The chef there, uh, Enrico Kripa, uh, tr- uh, spent three years in Japan, Uh, promoting his cuisine and he's heavily influenced by japan you see a lot of japan themed dishes um, in his cuisine and his whole philosophy he has his own farm his whole philosophy is to use produce from lange which is also a unesco world heritage site and it's rich with a lot of um, different types of Vegetables, meat, and whatnot. Um, so that also incorporates what you just mentioned—his um, cooking style and philosophy—and you also see that in Scandinavia, which is quite common.
1: Mm, right. So, like Nanoma, Denmark, also. I mean, Italian cuisine always very really based on natural bounties. Yes. Bounty, so, okay. And uh, so, there are many other reasons why Japanese cuisine is so unique. But uh, for example, uh, if we discuss it, say, French is a cuisine of addition. And Japanese is that of subtraction, I often hear. So what does it mean?
2: Well, I actually took that phrase from your book, uh, and <laughs> okay. it's discussed in that book. so
1: Everybody if buy the book. See <laughs> everybody
2: why. buy the book if you're curious to learn more. Um, but uh, I guess the basis of this is that instead of layering flavors, um, Japanese cooks aim to minimize elements of the dish. To showcase the flavor of seasonal ingredients, mm-hmm. and by seasonal ingredients they have a specific term for it. They call it shun. So that's uh, anything that's peak season. The Japanese love to eat shun products. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an example, pike mackerel uh, in in uh, what is it? Early fall. Um, there's almost a religious fervor when this comes out, and a lot of Japanese uh, day and night eat, basically, uh, pike mackerel. <laughs> it's a big deal. So this holds true for other types of um, ingredients in Japan also. So it's really about showcasing the flavor of uh, seasonal ingredients. And I'm going to add that outside of washoku, um, so this is the subtraction part of it, um, and outside of washoku, in the narrow definition of um, the term, when Japanese cooks seek to blend flavors together they actually seek to harmonize the flavor also. So there's an element of addition, too. Um, and this mani- manifests itself um, in things like ramen, stews, um, and much and to a significantly much lesser degree in classical Japanese food. Um, when I was in Tokyo last October, as an example, I went to a ramen parlor called Hachigo in Ginza. Um, it basically means 885. Um, it's a six-seater. They only have one ramen on the menu. And uh, it it was a highly refined duck and prosciutto-based consomme-esque soup. And if you read the reviews, it's very interesting. uh, Everybody calls it uh, French cuisine disguised in a soup bowl with Chinese noodles. I also went to another ramen parlor called Chuka Soba Tomita. You may have heard of it. Um, He has his own documentary called Ramen Heads. It's been also awarded as uh, one of the top uh, uh, ramen restaurants in Japan for the last several years. Um, His soup was called the super-noko, so super rich, um, tonkotsu gyokai soup. Um, So it's a fish bone-based soup. It's simmered for over 20 hours, and it's reduced to a creamy consistency. Point being that uh, in both cases, these soups are very complex, a lot of efforts made into um, harmonizing the flavor. And not a single flavor really stands out. You get the subtle hints of various flavors. Mm. So in that sense, Japanese cuisine has evolved from the washoku, which is subtraction to now addition and harmonizing flavors, and it manifests itself again in more uh, things like ramen and stews, which are not um, historically part of classical Japanese cuisine.
1: Right. Well, I actually say, uh, that's so true. And also um, but still, ramen consists of soup and tare noodles and some toppings it's very simple too so it's almost like a minimalist and the more you have though the fewer you have the each component has to have more meaning in it so that's a kind of minimalist approach i think yeah
2: no absolutely and i think there's two ways of looking at it one to your point the minimalist there's some ramen restaurants which Completely disagree with the philosophy of blending in different types of things and they just serve it simple, mm. plain, and they say this is our classic Tokyo-style ramen. Mm. And then there is this new movement which is just complex and very robust broths and harmonizing the flavors.
1: Right. So does the minimal, minimum but depth of yes. it. Mm. Okay. So, um, yeah, so the one of the most important events in the Japanese culinary history is that uh, meat diet was banned by Emperor Tenmu in 675. So this is a very foundational, one of the foundational elements that determined Japanese style of cuisine. So why did he do that?
2: So pre-arrival of, of Buddhism in the 6th century from Korea, um, the Japanese actually ate meat. Wild boar was actually called uh, yamakujira, which means uh, mountain <laughs> whale. Um, but that's however, a <laughs> what's that? that's a cheat. <laughs> <laughs> um, but raising animals was a very resource intensive um, exercise. So Japanese farmers uh, working with limited space um, in their mountainous island nation, mind you, 70 percent of Japan is mountainous. Um, so it, it, farmers generally avoided using um, cattle and animals for food and Um, It it was a very expensive resource, Um, and as a result, they they were precious commodities. Um, So eating meat was really a luxury, Um, and it's mostly the aristocrats that engaged in it. Even throughout the ban, um, aristocrats continued to engage in eating some level of meat. So there was some of that there. Um, So... From a practical economic level, it didn't make sense to eat meat. And then with um, Emperor Tenmu, who was a devout Buddhist, and uh, w- uh, tying that with the ideas of Buddhist reincarnation, and that you know humans can get reincarnated into animals, and animals getting reincarnated into uh, humans, and also the uh, Japan's philosophy, probably more from a Shinto perspective, of of uh, embracing nature, being together with nature, worshipping in nature. Those, all those three elements came together, um, and um, that was one of the reasons why he actually banned it. And um, it, it changed the Japanese perception of meat so much so that for approximately 1,200 years, uh, meat was not consumed in Japan. Again, there were exceptions. Um, so uh, m- meat consumption really w- went down. And... Um, It was only after uh, the Meiji Restoration, and when was this? Approximately 1868, uh, that uh, Emperor Meiji decided to lift the ban officially. Um, So when when he lifted the ban, uh, he himself became an avid eater of meat, Um, and this (laughs) interestingly caused um, riots. um, And approximately, what is it? A a group of um, uh, monks went to the imperial palace to. Uh, demonstrate and a few of them got killed it got very violent uh, for because for them I mean it's a thousand two years of history that it's breaking taboos but however as Japan got prosperous um, especially post the Kanto earthquake mm. uh, when foreign aid came to Japan food came to Japan especially uh, canned corn beef came to Japan um, meat consumption picked up and now Japan as you may know uh, has some of the best beef in the world
1: mm. um, that's it's, it's interesting it's right? Wagyu
2: It also has very good pork. Um, um, It also has the kuroge wagyu, uh, which is exported globally. So from 1,200 years of not eating meat, all of a sudden, it's one of the biggest producers and exporters of uh, great beef. And Mm -hmm. there's also a reason why. I'm sure you may have noticed, Akiko-san, but uh, canned corn beef is rather common in Japan. You can find it in uh, convenience stores. (laughs) And that is, again, a legacy of the uh, 1923 Kanto earthquake.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 I have a memory. I, I, I like that fatty and salty, you know, it's kind of comfort food. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't think I see it here very often. Yeah. So I think the original, um, the ban by uh, Emperor Tenmu, he banned uh, eating um, by killing, cruelly, killing uh, beef, uh, horse, dog, monkey, monkey was counted, and chicken. And I think if it's wild, I think there are some, you know, way to maneuver to eat some wild animals. But I think majority of people didn't eat meat. Yeah. Right. So the fish became the major protein source and or, you know, like rice and uh, soybeans. That's naturally how people started to take in as main source of protein.
2: Especially with Japan being an island nation, there's plenty of fish. Right. Yeah. And just to add to that, um, the, the ideas of uh, compassion for all living things, which is a Buddhist philosophy. Mm-hmm. A common sight in Japan is these stone pillars and Buddhist statues, uh, which are erected to commemorate animals that have been of service to humans. Mm-hmm. So again, historically, there is, from a religious standpoint, there's this respect for animals.
1: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. But this is like a side story. But for some reason, Japan, Shintoism and Buddhism are both accepted. I think that's the previous emperors like Shōtoku Taishi. They decided, okay, well, they're gonna go together. So we just we believe in both. So that's a very generous idea. <laughs> and it's a nice union. Right, <laughs> harmony.
2: Harmony, yes. What? Right.
1: Wow. No. So uh, and so, Japanese cuisine has a long history, and it's said to have started when rice production began during the Yayoi period, which is about two thousand years ago. And since then, different styles of Japanese cuisines have, uh, well, cuisines have developed due to the economic, political, and cultural reasons. So let's talk about different genres of Japanese food. Uh, chronolog- chronologically, I think it's easier to understand. So one of the first notable style of Japanese cuisines is called Daikyo Ryori, which was born during the Heian period around the 10th century, and it was a formal meal served to no- the nobles that was heavily influenced by Chinese culture. And I heard the service of the meal was extremely formal and didn't last long for the reason in history. Then Honzen Ryori was born, which is a big deal. It becomes the foundation of many others. So, what is Honzen Ryori?
2: So, yeah, to your point, Honzen Ryori is foundation of what's now called Kaiseki and also Washoku, which is Japanese just Japanese cuisine. Uh, Let me take a step back and kind of classify this. Um, So Japanese cuisine in in the broadest sense of the term is called Nihon Ryori. Under Nihon Ryori obviously falls different types of cuisines, the classical type, the traditional, the Kaiseki's, the Honzen Ryori. Um, Also things like uh, ramen, curry rice, um, things you can find in convenience stores. Which is a uh, fried chicken karage. So it, it, it compa- encompasses a broad category of things, food that are consumed in Japan. Um, to begin with, the classical side of things, uh, the beginning was um, honzenryori. Um, it's it's uh, Japan's classic cuisine. It's highly ritualized. It traces its roots from um, what's called gishiki ryori or mm. ceremonial cuisine which uh, took off during the Heian period in Kyoto, so this is somewhere around 9th and 10th century. Um, Honzen ryori really picked up in the 14th century uh, from the warrior class and uh, now has largely disappeared and is kind of evolved into what's uh, what we call now kaiseki ryori. And there are two types of kaiseki ryori, I guess, which we'll discuss later. Mm,
1: right. So the Japanese history, of course, um, you know, just the emperor started everything, magically, this, you know, like a Shintoism. And then the nobles took the top of the society, governed, and then servants, samurai, started to be more powerful. And eventually they beat the nobles, and they become the manager of the whole society. So that's when the Honzen was born, right? I think yeah, it was the warrior more, class, yep. right. All right.
2: It's it's kind of similar to Europe too. You know, you had the aristocracy, you had the, the, the merchants, you had the warrior class, and over time, again, based on uh, differences in, in, in economics and, and practicalities, cuisines were shaped by different classes of society. Right. So we obviously see that in Japanese cuisine also.
1: Mm. Right. So then, based on honzenryu, which was very ritual, and I heard it it took a long time, and depending on who you are. You serve different food, so you feel like you are inferior to someone else at the same, you know, sitting. But um, so you said there are two kaiseki. It's you into two types of kaiseki. So can you tell tell us both?
2: Sure. So let me begin with um, kaiseki. <laughs> they're both kaiseki. <laughs> but um, the, the Chinese characters are what's called the kanji in Japanese are different. Let me start with uh, the one which is um, futokoro and ishi. Uh, So that means, basically, your abdomen and stone. And the reason why they use these characters is because... um, uh, Sorry, what's it? The the reason why they use this is because... um, uh, Buddhist monks would place hot stones in front of their stomachs. Um, they, they they, They warm the stones and place it in the front fold of their garments. So this would help them with hunger. And point being, it, it is very simple, it is very basic. Um, and as a result, you're usually left hungry. Um, so, in order to help with that, with help with the pain, people would put stones there. So, that's where the name actually comes from.
1: Mm, so, they're starving and they had a stomach ache. It, and absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So,
2: they were starving. It's and, and, and it's often called chakaiseki, just to distinguish it from kaiseki. Uh, because it just creates a lot of confusion again. It's classic. It's formal uh, But the big distinction between this kaiseki and, and the other kaiseki We're going to talk about is this kaiseki arose from tea ceremonies. The other kaiseki arose with with liquor So because it's served before tea ceremonies uh, The food is again simple. It's light it respects seasonality. It respects tradition culture in the same way you envision tea ceremonies, um, food was also presented in a similar manner. So the meal, again, was consumed before tea ceremony, and the soup and rice came all together uh, with the meal, which is also different from the other kaiseki, where the, uh, the soup and also the rice comes at the end, which is called shime, the conclusion meal.
1: Mm. Right, so the you know the stone on your abdomen, that is the you know, the kaiseki that usually served with tea ceremony. That's how you remember. And then the other kaiseki is meeting, gathering occasion. Yes. Kaiseki. So that's for uh, enjoy enjoying meal with sake. Yes. And, right. Okay. So what we usually have in the modern modern world of kaiseki is the latter. You enjoy Correct. Meal, yes. Right. Okay. So um, so the yeah, and also the Chakaiseki, oh, or there is, a, you know, Sen Norikyu, that's the important cultural um, gentleman who was very influential to develop the tea ceremony. So the, he kind of established that, you know, bottom on the So that's really, like, established. For tea people, that's a very kind of not abundant, the lighter meal. Yeah. Yeah, to ease before drinking uh, caffeine-rich tea.
2: Absolutely. Right. And this is where Ichiju Sansai also comes from, uh, basically one soup and three dishes, which comes from Honzenryori uh, initially. Um, and kaiseki. this type of Kaiseki has heavily influenced Washoku in terms of manners, cooking methods, just kind of philosophy, because this type of Kaiseki, uh, it, it incorporates Japanese aesthetic values of Wabi Sabi, Um, and and other uh, types of, excuse me, uh, Japanese aesthetic values. Right. So this is not as common as the other kaiseki, and it has evolved uh, to refer to quartz meals now that are generally light. And now it's even evolved. And uh, I've recently read that there's such a thing as uh, oshu kaiseki, so Mm -hmm. a fusion of Japanese and uh, European slash Western cuisine deliver it in a very light uh, manner and in a, over a multi-course meal. So it's really the fusion of Japanese light classical cuisine and Western cuisine. Mm,
1: that sounds ideal.
2: Yeah, it should, <laughs> should be very delicious. Right.
1: Okay. So, um, yeah, well, we talked about the ban of meat diet earlier. So uh, maybe we should talk about shojin ryori too. What is shojin yori?
2: So shojin basically means uh, uh, monks, and uh... it's vegetarian cooking um, introduced into japan together with buddhism in the sixth century and uh... again shojin is a buddhist term that refers to asceticism in pursuit of enlightenment and uh... ryori basically means cooking uh... so in the thirteenth century with the advent of uh... the zen sect of buddhism the custom of eating shojin ryori really spread uh... foods uh... derived from soybeans, tofu, vegetable oils including sesame Walnut and rapeseed uh, were popularized in Japan as a result of their use in shojin ryori. Again, mm. it's very light um, and it's geared more towards monks. And I think uh, you can experience shojin ryori in in uh, in New York. I forgot the name of the restaurant off the top of my head. Kajitsu. Was it Choya? Kajitsu, Kajitsu, yes. Yeah. I haven't had it, but apparently, from what I hear, they serve um, shojin ryori, and it's very popular among vegans in mm. in New York.
1: Right. So, yeah, I'm sure monks didn't expect a lot of people to become vegetarian in modern life in the States. But, yeah, that's definitely. And also in uh, some temples in Kyoto, they serve uh, shojin ryori yeah, to the I've public.
2: Heard, yeah, I've heard a lot of tourists that go and experience it.
1: Right. I think I had it before once and it was really good. So, anyway, so um, let's see. So, Yoshoku, you mentioned after the 1890s when the Western culture flooded into Japan, new style of cuisine quickly developed because of the Western influence. So, that's called the Yoshoku. So, what is Yoshoku?
2: So, Yoshoku, uh, the Chinese characters or the kanji, means Western food. Uh, it's basically Japan's take on Western cuisine and it's evolved, it has taken a life of its own. Uh, it has Japani- Japanized, it's Western cuisine, or European cuisine, but seen through the eyes of um, Japanese people. Um, and you don't really find it outside of Japan. Recently in New York, there are restaurants that serve Washoku, uh, But examples include things like omuraisu omelet rice, uh, pork shogayaki, pork ginger, uh, the Japanese hamburg steak, Uh, Even things like saikoro steak, uh, dice steak. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's things you can find in um, Denny's and a lot of fast food restaurants in Japan. Um, Also, there are restaurants that specialize in yôshoku. And again, we're starting to see see that pop up in New York. Um, And it really took off post-World War II, initially introduced in the 1920s, uh, but because of the war, it really didn't pick up. But um, after Japan started prospering and they traveled more, they imported more. Uh, it really took went to the next stage, um, and and it, it, it again Japanized and became its own category.
1: Right? Yeah. Yoshoku, I think in general, that's very uh, comfort food based. Oh, I love <laughs> so it. Everybody loves it. Yeah. Right from a child to elders.
2: There's a restaurant in uh, East Village called Aoi, I think is the name. I don't know if you've been, but they serve washoku. Um, Bar Moga also serves washoku on. Yoshoku? Ken... Uh, sorry. Yeah. Yoshoku, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yoshoku. Um, and they also serve things like lokomoko, uh, which is kind of the next stage of uh, yoshoku, mm. uh, more Hawaiian based Japanese stuff. Interesting. Um, and it's a very affordable price point and delicious.
1: Mm. Okay, so that's yōshoku. Um, so, we are tight on time, but uh, let's just talk about osechi quickly.
2: Yeah, so osechi is uh, Japanese cooking, which is an uh, assortment of specialty foods uh, served at New Year's. It's distinctively served and eaten in, in New Year's. Um, it originated during the Heian period, again, the 9th uh, n- and 10th uh, century, in, uh, mostly in Kyoto. Um, And the term denoted the food served at uh, banquets given by imperial court to celebrate the changing of seasons. That's where sechi comes from. The food, which are uh, prepared in advance, are highly uh, preservable, thus eliminating the need for cooking during the first three days of New Year. And again, it was osechi uh, that won. Uh, It's a category of washoku, and that's one of the reasons why uh, washoku uh, won the, uh, the became a UNESCO intangible cultural heritage. Right, um, and then product.
1: you know it can be it's like a in a huge bento box and a layer like three to five, and then each uh, component has long life or healthy or hard working or getting rich. What its meaning in each food? In yeah, the there's
2: box. a lot of symbolism. Um, also, the display is extremely beautiful. Right. I've had the honor to experience it many, many times when I lived in Japan. Um, Since I moved to the U.S., I really haven't had it. I'm sure if I look around, there's it exists somewhere. But um, yeah, it's it's very interesting and unique.
1: Mm, Right. Okay. So we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll discuss um, unique ideas about tastes and flavors in Japanese cuisine. So please stay with us. Koren's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Coin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats live right from the Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is um, Masud Gyasi, who has a Japanese food uh, restaurant book. Called um, on Instagram, sorry, blog on Instagram under Tokyo Manhattan. So um, let's continue. Uh, washoku. What's unique about washoku? So that's um, there's a special term. It's called the mikaku to describe taste and flavor. So what is exactly? What exactly is mikaku in Japanese cuisine?
2: So, yeah, J- Japan has its own unique um, flavor and texture concepts. Um, flavor concepts are what's called mikaku. Mi is flavor. Uh, also, when you say umami, uh, that also means uh, flavor. Uh, but basically, it's um, just like most cuisines in the world. It's uh, sweetness, amami, acidic, um, sour. It's called sami in Japanese. Uh, enmi, which is uh, salty, nigami, which is bitter, and those are the four basic types. Um, and there's also umami, which was discovered in 1908 by uh, a, I think it was a doctor, but Ikeda-san, uh, and, he, and then he monetized on this and created, mass-produced, what's called Ajinomoto, which is still a huge food company in, in uh, Japan. Um, And he created an additive um, called Ajinomoto, named also, the company has the same name. Um, And Japan was significantly ahead in classifying umami as a flavor. And basically what umami is, it's savoriness, meaty, brothy. And he started off by looking at dashi, which is Japanese uh, stock. Um, and uh, uh, and, And he basically came up, he isolated everything and he came up with the concept of umami. Um, It also manifests itself in things like soup stocks, consommé, roasted tomatoes, cheese melting in a juicy hamburger. This is all what's called umami. It's also a taste enhancer. Um, And umami generally carries a positive connotation because it's mostly natural. But umami is also MSG, which carries a negative connotation because it's usually processed. Um, And again, it's not natural. Uh, They use the same molecule. It's an amino acid called glutamate, uh, which activates the taste receptors. Um, In uma, again, means delicious. Umai. And mi is flavor. So the Chinese characters of the kanji means delicious flavor.
1: Right. And uh, so interesting about umami is that it doesn't have their own flavor, but enhances the flavors with, you know, which they're combined. So... What I heard is that why parmigiano is so tasty because it's salty, rich in umami. So they enhance that synergy in it too.
2: Yeah, so it's also, to your point, it's an enhancer. And it also has its own distinctive, I guess, uh, property, which is the, the savoriness.
1: Right. And different um, glutamic, you know, the umami can be different kind of, uh, you know, acid. Like glutamic acid, inosinic you know, acid. So they have their own synergy so, so, like, you know, earlier you said the example of ramen with tonkotsu and fish. So different kinds of umami synergize each other.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Right.
1: So I'm getting hungry. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting, uh, which is not known as umami, but there's another one called the kokumi. So what is uh, kokumi?
2: Yeah, so let me begin with uh, the concept of koku, um, and let me uh, begin with an example. A ramen, a good ramen soup is considered to be complex as a result of various ingredients in play. Uh, there's depth of flavor, and everything's in a harmonious state. This is assuming it's good. Um, furthermore, during uh, mastication, when we're actually eating it, uh, the various flavors spread throughout the mouth, and it has a lingering aftertaste. Um Conversely, one is not meant to experience strong standalone flavors. They're meant to experience this whole complex, robust flavor, all harmonized. And this concept, interesting enough, is captured by two letters in the Japanese language, koku. Mm. It took me a good 30 seconds to explain it in English, but Japanese have two letters for it. (laughs) (laughs) So that just goes to show how they have their own unique um, flavor concepts. Um, And going to your question about kokumi, um, so this is again a newly a uh, taste concept that has been described as a taste enhancer that magnifies and lengthens um, all the other five basic tastes. So it kind of sits on top of all the flavors. Mm-hmm. And this uh, came about, I think, in the 1980s, so it's still relatively new. And uh, words that express the Kokumi idea include things like continuity, mouthfulness, heartiness, and, and thickness. Mm -hmm. Um, So kokumi is believed to be um, involved in the sensation of mouth-coating, the satisfying uh, and and hard-to-replicate experience of butter, fats, and emulsions coating the the tongue and the mouth. So I guess the best way to describe it is is very simplistically. It's umami and koku put together becomes kokumi.
1: Mm, Okay. Um, So sounds like umami is more of um, accentuate the other tastiness and then kokumi is more like deepening and widening the flavor taste experience in a way
2: yes that's a great way to explain it yes Mm -hmm.
1: and i heard that the kokumi is um with a lot of glutathione and also it's really you can find kokumi in you know animal liver and muscles and it's like intense parts which uh, uh, nutrition-rich part of the animals. And I heard also that cauliflowers and onions have kokumi, too. Interesting. Yeah, so yeah, I haven't really discovered well enough, so I'll keep looking. Yeah. <laughs> um, Maybe we can
2: talk about it on the next show.
1: Yeah, sounds that's good. <laughs> yeah, but the Japanese people, like, you know, if you go to, like, izakaya, this is koku, koku-garu, yeah. like, it was rich in koku. So that's a very common term, yes. but not scientifically well-discussed as much as umami, I think. No. Yeah. All right, so another element in um, Japanese cuisine is texture. I think there's so many texture expressions um, in Japanese cuisine, so maybe you can give us um, some examples?
2: Yeah, so again, mikaku is a flavor concept, and then there's the shokkan, which is the texture, con- texture concept. Uh, shokkan means, uh, literally translated, the mouthfeel, how things feel in your mouth. And texture is very important in in Japanese cuisine, and it manifests itself in different parts of Japanese cuisine, Uh, like sushi, as an example, Uh, different types of pieces, clams. Um, I've noticed eating with a lot of people, sometimes they're like, why are we eating the squid? It doesn't really taste like anything. Or this clam really is not that good. But I always tell them this is purely a texture play. It's meant to um, play with the palate. Um, It's meant to mix things up. And some people consume things, well, Japanese people like to consume things purely for its textual mm. um, value, as long as it doesn't taste too bad. Um, so again, point being, texture plays a, a, a major role. In noodles, uh, we call it koshi. Mm. The whole concept of al dente is very, very popular in Japan. Even on noodles and convenience stores, it talks about how this is al dente and this and that. So, hagotai, the bite, um, is another important element of I think it's, its the
1: most important when it comes to eating soba and udon, and then uh, followed by soup, the taste of soup.
2: Absolutely, yeah. they I mean, we, they talk a lot about um, koshi, mm. but again, uh, given s- the stubborn nature of some ramen chefs and soba chefs, uh, they all have their own philosophy, and if you tell them that, and they're very proud of their soup, they might disagree. Whereas those that are really into their noodles completely agree. So there's always <laughs> various schools of thoughts, and you get in, you can get into fights with some chefs if you you know say stuff like that. So it's quite interesting how they operate.
1: Right, and also I, I started to be more aware of how differently sushi rice is cooked, and uh, like how much water in it, and it changes the whole experience. Yeah. So listen, so if you try to go to sushi place next time, just pay attention, and you really. Feel. Oh wow! It's not just about fish on top.
2: Oh, absolutely. Rice plays a very, very big role. Some advanced eaters really focus on the rice. But if I may break the uh, shokan concept down, the the texture concept down, there's hagotai, which I just mentioned, which is the bite, the al dente feel. Mm. Uh, there's shitazawari how it touches and feels on the tongue. Um, And finally, there's nodogoshi, which is frequently brought uh, up in beer commercials. They love to talk about (laughs) nodogoshi. Nodo means throat, and it's how it feels in the throat when things are swallowed. So in terms of beer, conceptually speaking, it's it's ice cold, it's foamy, it's light. It it tantalizes the throat because of the alcohol, and it's refreshing. So Mm. all that put together is the nodogoshi of beer
1: right that's interesting so you know you just mentioned teeth tongue and throat yes like in one bite Japanese people are so obsessed with that you know the mouse experience—they broke it down into three parts of your mouth. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous to me. And it speaks to <laughs>
2: the obsessive nature of Japanese. I mean, you can go to a restaurant izakaya and just talk about these things for two hours for every single dish, and you'll be done with dinner <laughs> and no other conversation.
1: Right, <laughs> and you're gonna have a good time too. Yes, <laughs> for sure. All right. So, uh, based on all those things we discussed today, so what restaurants are your favorite currently to enjoy the uniqueness of bashoku?
2: Yeah, so I still am a big fan of Sechu Yokota. It's a great place. Um, they they fuse Washoku concepts with uh, Western elements too. Hence the name uh, Sechu, which means to blend. Um, Shuraku, I went recently, which is a high end izakaya, was very good in the West Village. Um, a lot of good ingredients, um, providing for a, a high end izakaya experience, and there it's it's quite. Um, uh, it's very simple traditional Japanese izakaya food and they focus a lot on their ingredients Uh, in terms of sushi, sushi nose was just spectacular, it's Mm. phenomenal Uh, the chef uh, nose is also very uh, focused on presentation, the aesthetic side of things, like he brings out a whole tuna, uh, slab of tuna and he cuts it in front of you Uh, so he does things like that sushi amane, which is another high end sushi uh, which is very good um, Okuda I haven't tried, but that's a f- pretty well-known uh, washoku, I mean, kaiseki. Is oh, a very
1: you have? super traditional, yeah. So
2: So I guess that's your best experience in terms of washoku.
1: Okay, so, and then you said Sechou Yokota is in, where is it, in East Village In too? Alphabet
2: City, um, okay. Avenue B and 3, so East Village, correct.
1: Right, and you said Shulaku is. West Village. Village. Okay, and then uh, Sushinozu.
2: Upper East Side.
1: Okay, and Sushi Amane, Amane, Uh, right?
2: Midtown East.
1: Mm -hmm. And Okuda. Uh, I
2: I haven't been there, but I think it's um, It's, it's West Village Tribeca area. Chelsea. Chelsea? Oh, okay. I think
1: so. Yeah, so anyways, there's unlimited.
2: Two more, yeah. So Shabu Shabu Mayumo, which is Shabu Shabu, but they also bring in elements of washoku in there. They have prepared dishes. And also Jukai. in uh, this is Midtown East again. It's as if you're walking to Tokyo, and they're very focused on different types of flavors. And there's an element of washoku there. And finally, uh, Tsukimi, which I still have to try. But mm. from what I understand, they're focused on washoku. Have you been? Yes. Oh, I'm jealous. Yeah,
1: it's weird. Really, tsukimi is uh, from uh, Chef Akiyama, who used to be in many different places, and he's in charge of uh, Sakamai.
2: Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and I Akiyama-san...
1: I'm trying to invite him to the show, but yeah. he's a very modest person, oh. so it was declines. But, yeah, it's a very good place because, like, first time I sat down, there's a, you know, Oshibori. Yes. Right? To wipe your warm towel, to wipe your hands. And there is a Hinoki-infused uh, Oshibori. Wow. So you, that kind of sensibility really changed the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's a whole package of things. And, yeah, we talked about the taste elements and cultural background today, but I think washoku has to be always um, discussed with hospitality of Motenashi.: Yes, so, which we'll mention maybe in the next episode. Absolutely. Right. Okay, so, uh, so can you tell us, again, where, where I can find you digitally online?
2: Yes, so I am um, um, on Instagram as Tokyo, Manhattan, Kobe. Tokyo Manhattan. That's a cool
1: name. (laughs) (laughs) I think so too. Right. And you're followed by many people. Yeah. So many media people too now. Not Mm.
2: too many followers, but I'm getting there. Approximately have 4,000 now.
1: Mm. But the Corey, like Michelin and Eater and those notable media, follows you. So congratulations. Thank you. All right. So uh, thank you so much for joining us and come back.
2: Absolutely. And everyone, don't forget to buy uh, uh, Akiko san's book.
1: Thank you. All right, so listeners, if you would like to know more about um, Masu's discoveries, uh, stay tuned. I hope he's going to come back soon. And then again, it's an Instagram, it's Tokyo Manhattan. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at, at org or com. Japan Eats is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. My engineer today is Amand Wong, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, Hood Radio supported by you.